0: Oi, mate. What do you think you're doing? Crikey.
1: Crikey on back to True Crime Trine. Welcome. It's a podcast where the planets align, three friends chat, true crime, astrology, any other weird bullshit we can fit into this podcast. Uh, We are your host, Hannah. Sarah.
0: I was drinking, sorry.
1: (laughs) And Meredith. (laughs) And welcome to episode 48, part two. Let's just get into it. Let's hit it. two all right remember that asshole eric edgar cook dick mm-hmm still talking about him bogan ah uh, few roos loose in the paddock yes spider fucker mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> he is here to fuck spiders so he can piss off and not piss up
1: <laughs> yeah well he hadn't killed anybody in a while just assaulted two years Right? And then he just did some assaults, but no one Mm -hmm. has died. But January 26, 1963 would change that. (sighs) Any of our Australian listeners, which I don't know if we have any. I think we've got one. Oh, hi. Well, then you would recognize the date as Australia Day. Oh. Which celebrates the founding of Australia and the date that the first English explorer stepped foot on Australian soil, leading to the establishment of a colony. Oh. Yeah, well, yeah, especially from the views of the indigenous people of Australia. It sounds a lot like Columbus Day for us Americans. Sucks, but we can't judge you because Columbus Day is still a federal holiday over here. So sorry, we all suck. But isn't it now?
2: At least my phone said it. Maybe Samsung's getting woke, but (laughs) instead of it saying Columbus Day, it said Indigenous People's Day. (laughs)
1: Oh, I think my Google Calendar says that too. Yeah. Well, anyway. White people in America, white people in Australia, we're not that different. We could come together as one. Stop raping and pillaging cultures. I
2: think and the celebrating indigenous
1: it. people of Australia did a little bit better just because it was so much space of nothing.
2: Highly recommend not watching The Nightingale.
1: Okay. Never even heard of it.
2: It was visually, emotionally, physically upsetting.
1: Okay.
0: Okay, no thanks. Mm-mm. I like shit that blows up.
2: <laughs> so, yeah lots of things needed to have blown up including some body parts of a certain man but they did they never did i kept waiting for it and they never did so
1: okay i probably will avoid that i'm yeah. like there's enough bad shit happening in the world right now that i don't need to also watch a fictional movie i already yeah. feel bad no it's been a really rough week i i'm doing okay but... okay and we're like three to four
0: beers in now so you're welcome
1: And maybe by the time we record this, Putin has been assassinated. Maybe. Woo! All right. Well, Australia Day. Still working on it. Like, we're still working on Columbus Day, but we're trying to learn as white people. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, this white person, Cook, was an asshole, and on yes. Australia Day, he found himself another gun. No. no, this was unbeknownst to Rowena Reeves, who was a popular bartender, who was seeing out Australia Day with Nicholas August, a proprietor of a poultry business. Oh, another chicken man! More chicken! A chuck! 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 All right. This is going to be another scandal for Perth, as Nicholas, August, was a married man. Ew. Uh, Nicholas. It, it was 2am. The bars were closed, and Nicholas and Rowena were drinking a couple more beers while Nicholas's car, which is parked, facing the ocean. Which does sound kind of romantic. It does. Cook came across Rowena and Nicholas first and watched them for a while from the shadows before creeping towards the car. Ew. Gross. For some reason, the couple turned on the interior light at that moment, and Rowena caught sight of the stranger watching them.
0: Oh, creepy. Ew.
1: She told Nicholas, who assumed that his wife had hired someone to follow them. He threw his bottle towards the stranger, telling him to piss off. <laughs> not up. Not up. This made piss Cook off. snap, and as he raised the gun, Rowena yelled out, Look out! He's got a gun! While instinctively crouching down and pushing Nicholas's head down as well. A shot rang out, and a bullet went through Rowena's wrist and <gasps> skimmed Nicholas's neck.
2: Oh, fuck.
1: In shock, Nicholas spun the car out and raced away. Cook got off a second shot, but missed them completely. Uh, in this state of shock, Nicholas couldn't find his way to the hospital. And when he tried to ask for directions, uh, the person would see this couple covered in blood and run away. Well,
0: Yeah. That'd be
1: pretty creepy Especially to see. in the- like you like the dead of night. Yeah. Yeah. Dead of night- they eventually found the hospital. Nicholas was extremely lucky. It was only a difference of a few millimeters and the bullet would have hit his spinal cord, killing Ooh. Nicholas or making him a quadriplegic. Yeah. Holy fuck. He close shaved there. Rowena Ru- yeah. had a fractured radius and a bullet fragment was removed from her wrist. Mm-hmm. She was able to describe the shooter as tall and slim, and Nicholas described him as being between 20 and 25 years old, slim, 5'9", wearing dark clothing. He also remembered that there was something strange about his lower face, as if he was wearing some sort of covering.
0: Hm. That's uh, just all the scars.
1: Well, he actually started wearing, like, kerchiefs and stuff to cover his uh, face as well. Okay. With his lady gloves. Oh, uh, he's just gonna put a dress on soon. Which you do you, but stop shooting people. <laughs> Uh, no information about how Nicholas's wife felt about all this excitement though. I'm sure she was not not pleased. Very excited. It sounded like she knew about it if Nicholas like, thought that she might have sent someone to spy on them. You yeah. were doing what in the middle of the night with this girl. No, no. At the beach. Yeah. Well, the next victim would be twenty nine year old Brian Weir. Oh, a boy. Yeah, he was very content with his life. Everything was coming up, Brian. He worked at British Petroleum as an accountant and was engaged to be married in three months. He's also fit and would have definitely put up a fight with Cook, but he didn't get the chance. Cook shot him as Brian was sleeping in his sleep out. Sleep out? Yes. His covered porch thingy robot. Oh, okay. Brian was scheduled to attend a surf rescue boat training at 7 a.m. the following day. He was much better at it than Cook, Mm -hmm. but he didn't show up. And apparently these different surf and rescue clubs compete in tournaments. And so there was a championship coming up soon. And so Len Bath volunteered to go check on Brian because they really wanted to practice or something. Mm Mm-hmm. He found Brian hanging off the side of his bed, covered in blood, breathing slowly and heavily. Glenn panicked and raced back to the clubhouse, which caused all the club members to run back towards Brian, where they were clearly able to see the top left side of his head blown away.
0: Oh, Oh. fuck. But he's still breathing?
1: Mm Mm-hmm.
0: But (laughs) they didn't, like, call 911 or... What is it? Zero zero zero?
1: They called for an ambulance. Uh I think Len fucking panicked, which fine. And then they came they called an ambulance. Somehow Brian's roommate had been able to sleep through the whole thing. Which Oh, he was there? Could be me, because I slept through multiple earthquakes. Brian arrived at Royal at the Royal Perth Hospital. Oh fuck. Our favorite place. Mm-hmm. He was rushed into emergency surgery where neurosurgeons worked on his head for eight hours. Ooh. The doctors warned Brian's family that if Brian survived, it would be a miracle. And it would be a miracle where Brian would be left with extensive brain damage. And during this surgery, most of his left temporal region was removed. Oh my god. For six months, Brian Weir was in a coma. Ugh. Police stayed at his hospital room around the clock, just in case the shooter tried to come back to finish the job. Okay. When Brian emerged from his coma, the doctors were able to get a real feel on how the brain injury had affected him. He was paralyzed on one side, he couldn't move either of his arms, he couldn't walk, and he couldn't speak. Oh my god. He was blind in one eye, deaf in one ear with epileptic fits. He would need full-time care for the rest of his life. He was extremely strong, and he tried to work through his disabilities, and he was eventually able to exercise some control over his left hand. Uh, At one point, he was able to stand up and take a few steps while in, like, a supporting frame situation. Okay. But the pain in his legs became too much, and he ended up needing an operation to cut the tendons in his legs, which relieved the pain quite a bit, but meant he would never walk again. His family stayed by his side the whole time and held on to hope. They could see flashes of the old Brian, even though he couldn't verbally communicate with them. However, Brian was plagued by infections and epileptic fits, and one of those fits led to his death almost three years later, on December 19th, 1965. <sighs> so technically he's considered an indirect victim of a cook, but I think he's a direct victim. It, yeah, that's bullshit, yeah, yeah that's definitely I was like, direct. No, no no no. he
2: wouldn't have encountered those health problems mm-hmm. if it weren't for the attack.
1: All right, well, now let's meet John Lindsay Sturkey, who was in his first year at University of Western Australia. Where are you studying science? You? He, he was planning to move to Brisbane, <laughs> which had one of the two veterinary colleges in Australia. He was gregarious, popular, warm, friendly. Uh, His outgoing personality might have affected his grades a bit as he had just finished repeating his first year, but he nailed it the second time. Okay. But again, this
0: is another boy. Mm -hmm. So there's a two year break and now we're on to boys?
1: Not necessarily, but...
0: Okay. (laughs) Opportunity -er.
1: or... A little bit. John was spending the summer getting more experience in animal care and enjoying time with his fiancée, Julie Hogg. On January 26th, Australia Day, John was sleeping on the veranda at a house that he shared with some school friends. Around 4.15 in the morning, his roommate, Scott McWilliam, was awoken by screams from Pauline, who was their landlady's niece, who was also staying in the house for the summer. Pauline had been awoken by gurgling sounds. Scott it's not a good sign. Mm -mm. Scott went to the veranda, switched on the light, and found John in a pool of blood making a choking sound. He could clearly see a gunshot wound at the top of his friend's forehead, and it was surrounded by bruising and powder burns, indicating that he had been shot at point blank. Mm. Pauline called the police, which advised them all to stay inside, below the level of the windows, while the ambulance was sent. John Sturkey died within three minutes of arriving at the hospital. When Julie's mother called her to tell her that her fiancé had been shot and killed, Julie tried to cut her off saying, I don't want to hear it. She spent the next few years in a depressive haze, just going through the motions without being able to see the point of it all. Julie described John as such, John loved his fellow beings. Loyalty and truthfulness were his character, and Mm. joyousness was his personality. Hmm. His friend Scott also suffered mentally for what sounds like PTSD, and Scott yeah. had actually known Peggy Flurry tangentially, so this was the second time that his life had been touched by this murderer. Oh, jeez. And he also had had a traumatic childhood growing up in a POW camp in Manila, so he had a lot to deal with. Yeah. yeah. And Cook wasn't quite done for the night. For his last target of the night, he just straight up rang the doorbell of a random house, ran back to his gun, and aimed it at the door. He was able to see a man throw on a red dressing gown and walk quickly to the front door. As soon as the door opened, Cook fired and hit George Orman Walmsley, a husband and father, directly in the center of his forehead. Oh my god. His daughter heard the doorbell and then the gunshot. (sighs) and raced down the stairs to find her father lying in a heap. The ambulance sped to Royal Perth Hospital. He died during emergency surgery. Yeah, cuddle Aww. some cats right now. I know. Cook had stolen a car that he used to drive right around that night, and his last act was to bring the car back to the owner, which was actually really common for him, because a lot of people never realized that their car had been stolen because it was there and they went to bed and it was there when they woke up. Oh, weird. Even though there's, like, blood in Blood hair. on that Well, not all of them had blood and hair or not. But they okay. a couple of them did wake up to a car that had, like, a crunched up front because it hit a person just to be an annoyance cook stole the interior light bulb of the car before i walked home what a fuck and the owner of the car remembered this when the police came eventually it was like oh i just the light bulb was gone i thought it was weird but i just you don't call the police about that you just move on but yeah really so, <laughs> you're just like oh, okay alrighty." To the police, the Australia Day murders were obviously all committed by the same man. Okay, Mm -hmm. got it. And they set upon finding the murder weapon. They weren't going to find it, though, as Cook had tossed it in a river on his way home. The police did find a spent cartridge, which was determined to be from a .22 single-shot rifle. The police went big and asked the population of West Australia to send in their .22 single-shot rifles to be test fired. Out of the 75,000 registered Twenty twos. The police were <laughs> able to test sixty thousand of them. Oh my god! The like the gunshot forensic person was like fucking busy as shit. Oh, oh yeah.
2: I mean, twenty twos are super popular, but like,
1: what? That's so many to go. It's through. so many. The detectives also did not believe Nick August and Ramana Reeves' story that they did not know the shooter. Based on the compromising position the two were found in, the police thought that they were holding back information to protect their reputations. One month later, when the moon was back in the same phase... Hey Moon. <laughs> the police reenacted the crime and found that it was so dark that the stand-in shooter couldn't even see the car, let alone two people inside. They didn't take into account the fact that they had accidentally turned the interior light on, because the police thought that was a lie. This only further fueled the police's suspicion. But Nick and Rowena continued to insist that they were telling the truth but the police were not buying it. Inspector Wedd wrote in his report, quote, August could see no logic in any of all the well-considered points which I had made. It was obvious that he was determined not to consider a point for fear of it being the breakdown of the impossible story put up by him and Reeves. August's main concern in respect to no publicity, or his and Reeve's name, is not so much the fear of the assailant looking him up, but hinges more on the fear that the publication of the names may lead to a disclosure by some third party, which would tend to reveal which they appear to be hiding. So they were sus. Yeah. (laughs) And then the city of Perth went into a full-blown panic, and the violence seemed so random and so unpredictable. And even though it was summer in Australia and no one had any air conditioning, people of Perth locked themselves inside their homes, refusing to open their windows, sleep on the sleepouts. By their beds they put whatever weapons they could find. They didn't go out at night, they didn't answer their doors, and they called the police whenever they heard a sound outside. Perth responded by leaving the street line streetlights on all night, at least mm-hmm. the ones I had, and had the police patrol the city every night. The increased wariness of the population and patrolling by the police did not affect Cook in the least, as he claimed another victim mere weeks later on February 9th, 1963. Oh. He was lucky, as that night, the majority of the police force was focused on apprehending a young man who had shot a policeman and a civilian and escaped by taking a taxi driver hostage, so Cook had the streets to himself. Fuck. Yeah, they're like, go after the cop killer. I mean, yeah, yeah, and like actively had a taxi driver hostage, so. Yeah, it was an emergency situation. Yeah, Uh, he didn't have a gun anymore, so he went back to an old standby, a car. Oh, fuck. It took him a while to find a victim, though. He was this close to running down a couple on a Vesper scooter, no, but was prevented (sighs) by another car turning onto the road at the last minute. Hmm. He came upon a second couple who were walking, but drove no. away at the last minute when he saw that they had a small child walking between them. He loved his kids.
2: Oh God, I was gonna say like what? No, okay.
1: but he hit those teenage
2: girls.
1: But this is like a but, like, seven-year-old not a small
2: child, child. But like, I mean, teenage girls—they could have been like almost normal height and hard to discern. And
1: he did find them fuckable. Ew. Ew. I mean he just liked young girls a lot. Yeah. Wow. Well, versus yeah. like
2: a a small small child. That's definitely yeah. like. So just he out had
0: one little limit. I'm not gonna give him. I any don't, I'm not giving points, him shit so. for this. It's not no. points, but I'm
2: saying no. visually is at least like. Okay, I yeah, get it. Yeah. More obvious
0: versus. Oh like, right. Yeah.
1: It did make him turn away because he didn't want to kill children. Blah, blah, blah. Well, he's
0: got six of his own, or
1: seven Seven. now,
0: for fuck's sake. Seven.
1: Eventually, Cook came across a young woman walking alone in the side of a dark road. This was Rosemary Anderson, who was only 17. She had been in her fiancé's house. They had got into a fight, and Rosemary had stalked away, telling her boyfriend, John Budden, that she would rather walk home than accept a ride from him. In the heat of anger, both of them forgot about the murderer wandering around Perth. John let her go at first, but quickly changed his mind, jumped into his car, and started driving down Rosemary's path home. He found Rosemary lying in the sand on the side of the road. Oh, fuck. Oh, John arrived at the scene just minutes after she had been run down. He jumped out of the car, ran to Rosemary's side, and started panicking as he found her lying still and covered in blood. Ooh. He did know better, but he was in shock, so he picked up Rosemary, carried her to his car, and drove her the two miles to the home of Dr. Quinn Livin, who John knew. And Dr. Quinn Levin had a small examining room in his house, so he was used to seeing patients at his home, just maybe not Mm -hmm. in the middle of the night. John and Dr. Quinn Levin brought Rosemary to the examination room, and the doctor quickly diagnosed her with a head injury due to the unequal dilation of her pupils. He took her pulse, found it to be very fast, but her breathing was labored, especially due to the large amount of sand that was in her mouth. Oh. Dr. Quinn Levin thought that she probably also had physical injuries and was in critical condition, so he called an ambulance and the police. Yeah. The ambulance quickly arrived, but Dr. Quinn asked John to stay with him so that he could give the police a statement. Uh, the ambulance arrived at the hospital and rushed Rosemary straight back to triage and into the emergency room. Doctors assessed her and found her unconscious with a total absence of reflexes and no response to any painful stimuli. Oh no. Her prognosis seemed poor, but the doctors attempted resuscitation, pumping blood and serum into her body and closely monitoring her vital signs. She actually seemed to start bouncing back to the point where doctors told her father that she would be fine and that he should go home uh, to his wife for the night. However, Rosemary suddenly declined and, despite life-saving measures, died at 2.30 in the morning. So then he comes back,
2: you know, the next day like, cool, how's she doing?
1: Dead. Died. (sighs) Yeah. Oops.
2: That's so sad.
1: All right. In the meantime, Cook continued to be a creep. He had been seen a couple of times, but was always able to talk himself out of trouble. And you weren't safe from his creepiness, even if you knew him. So Shirley Hunt lived in his neighborhood. And they chatted whenever they saw each other. Mm-hmm. Cook wanted a little bit more. And he liked to perv on Shirley, watching her through Ew. the window. Surprise. Yeah. Oh. At the last occasion of this Peeping Tom activity, Shirley's husband had actually saw him and chased him away. Good. Cook assumed, though, and was correct that Shirley wouldn't report him, and just maybe she didn't want to think all the way through this and come to the logical conclusion that her neighbor was a creep. But money had also been stolen from a jar in the kitchen, and clothes had been ripped from the clothesline and stuffed under the house. Ooh! And Shirley accused her nieces who were staying with her, but they adamantly denied being involved. They're like, no, it's the creepy fucking neighbor. It's that fucker that was watching you through the window.
0: My guess
2: is those clothes had to be washed again.
1: Ew. Oh, yeah,
0: 100%. Or just burn them. Burn them.
1: Snowdroppered. Ugh. Cook had also shown up with one of his daughters at his workmate, Arthur Reynolds, home. The Reynolds invited them in for tea, but Arthur's wife got bad vibes and kind of felt like he was just casing the joint.
0: Good. You think? Yeah. Send him the fuck out.
1: Three months later, the Reynolds children woke up screaming in their sleep out in the middle of the night, telling their parents that a man had been standing over them. Wow. Sheets and blankets were taken from the sleep out that night. No. After Crick was arrested, Arthur thought back to another incident where he had been driving his parents home one rainy night and had almost been run off the road by another car. It was a rainy and wet night, so Arthur thought that it could have been an accident, but when he got home and told his wife, she told him that a car, the same make and model as the car that had almost hit him, had been sitting outside their home for most of the night before suddenly speeding away. No, no. Cook also liked to talk about the crimes, but that wasn't really a red flag at the time, as everyone was talking about the crimes. His workmates realized later, though, that Cook had probably been playing a little joke on them when he said, quote, "Whoever's doing these murders must be a smart cookie."
0: <laughs> no, 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 <laughs> no,
1: because he's Cook, and he and he goes by Cookie. Lots of people do. What's a nickname? Gross. No. Hmm. Oh.
0: I hate it. I'm not going to look at cookies the same. No! I am because it's Girl Scout A season, season yeah. up here.
2: See, uh, I can't yeah. have them anyway because they have gluten in them, so I'm just like, fuck
0: them all. Fuck all the cookies. All
1: cookies are bad.
0: <laughs> I think it's the lemon one that does not have gluten.
1: Oh, really? The Lemonades? Good.
0: There's at least one of their cookies that doesn't. I have to find Girl this Girl Scouts out. Oh, have, like,
1: you know, changed with the times. Well... Mm-hmm. Alright, about a week after the attack on Rosemary Anderson, and this is on the day on the day after Valentine's Day, hmm. Cook murdered yet another victim.
0: No.
1: On that night, Lucy Madrill, a social worker, and her roommate Jennifer Hurst, a school teacher, were polishing the floors of their apartment. They'd only lived there for two and a half months, and they were not aware that the previous tenant had actually moved out because she felt like there had been a prowler that kept coming <gasps> back to the property. Ooh! Prowling did not stop once the new tenants moved in. Just three weeks earlier, Cook had been in the apartment and had taken a bottle of beer no it's not clear whether lucy or jennifer noticed the beer missing and i would probably just assume that the other one had drank drunk it so yeah i know it's like you drank it
2: and she's like no you drink it you know whatever
1: yeah one of us (laughs) did or i was drunk and i'm not keeping track of how many beers i have like you know like right now
2: it's it's been a double long record night and we don't know
1: we don't know where we are On the night of February 15th, Cook was able to enter the apartment easily as the two roommates had forgotten that they had propped open the back door while they were cleaning. Oh, no. Lucy Madrill, 24, does have a connection to the Seventh-day Adventist, but she was a a good- (laughs) Bad Ventist. No, she was a good Ventist. Oh, okay. Oh. Uh, She originally- Wow. Yeah. She originally wanted to be a missionary, but ended up getting a degree in social work and was working with the Native Welfare Department, where she worked mainly with Aboriginal women and children, and was in the process of developing a non-language intelligence test for Aboriginal people. Okay. Cook saw Lucy Madrill asleep in her bedroom and got quite excited. In his excitement, he fucked up and knocked a picture frame off of a dresser. Lucy Madrill jerked awake, but Cook was not having it tonight. Before she could scream, Cook punched her in the face and then grabbed her by the throat. This is going to be a bad one, guys. <sighs> he wrapped the cord of a lamp around her neck and strangled her to unconsciousness, planning to rape her once she was out. He went a bit too far, and Lucy Madrill died. Not oh, one no no, no, no no to change no, no. his plans. So, so he's the one one occasion where he admitted to necrophilia. Oh. Ugh. So he's definitely escalating so much. Oh my god. That's awful. He had seen Jennifer asleep in a different bedroom, but this crime had occurred with no sound and no blood. So Cook thought if he could get Lucy's body out of the house and into the car that he had stolen that night, then he could dump her body elsewhere.
0: So this is the first, like, removal of the body. Yeah.
1: Yeah, normally he just leaves them.
0: Yeah, or stages them at
1: the scene. Mm -hmm. Well, he didn't get very far, though, before Lucy's cat attacked him. Ah! Yes. The cat's like, fuck you, man, you sicko. And Cook had away with dogs. But he could not handle a cat. No, good. you can't. This cat can't. was a very good boy named Mudguts, which I think is so cute. Well,
2: it was a cat the last time too that like distracted I him know. from the noise outside. These cats,
0: cats are great, and he's Mudguts. Mudguts, yeah, which just so oh, cute. That is a good murder mittens buddy. Okay, mm-hmm.
1: keep that in your mind because this next paragraph is really bad. Faced with the cat, Cook dropped Lucy's body into the neighbor's front yard. There was an empty bottle in the yard. Cook picked that up, violated her with it, and then left the (gasps) bottle in the crook of her arm to shock whoever came across her body. Oh my god. There was semen on top of the bottle, and this forensic evidence was sent to Scotland Yard, which had developed tests to determine blood type from semen. However, Scotland Yard was unable to find anything conclusive. Seriously? Yeah. The one thing that the Perth police were convinced of was that this murder was not linked to the Australia Day murders, as this crime was very, very different. But it is. I understand. You mean deranged? It's so so different.
0: I mean, I get it, but still. (sighs)
1: Four months later, on June 15th, 1963, Cook broke into the apartment of another young woman, No. Carmel Madeline Reed, or Red, I don't really know, 20. She had just moved into this new apartment, finally getting out of the boarding house where she had been living and into her first apartment, which she only shared with two other women. Carmel had recently moved to Perth and worked in the education department at the university, doing statistical and clerical work for Dr. Bert Anderson, a senior lecturer at the college. Seems like a nice job. As Mm -hmm. I say, looking for a job. (laughs) Carmel shared her bedroom with Kathleen Ferguson, but on this night, both Carmel and Kathleen had two separate birthday parties to attend. Kathleen was celebrating her boyfriend's birthday. It would spend the night at his parents' place meaning that Carmel would have the bedroom to herself. Carmel had a great time at her friend's birthday party and didn't arrive home until 2.30. She had been dropped off by her friend's fiance, who had escorted her into the apartment and did a quick check around the house before determining that everything was fine and he went home. That's sweet. Mm-hmm. And everything was fine, so, like, he wasn't wrong. Yeah. Carmel got ready for bed and did a quick tour around the house to make sure that all the doors and windows were locked. There is one window that she didn't worry about as it was about five feet up and only two feet by one and a half feet in whatever shape. So it seemed okay. like no one would be able to get in through there. But- she went to bed and was awoken two hours later by a rustling noise in the dining room. Mm. she called out from her bed is anyone there don't do that that's like a horror movie well she did have a third roommate who had already been asleep when she had gone home so it was possible that her third roommate was out in the dining room it was not her third roommate no but it was cook He was getting tired of women waking up realizing he was there and starting to scream he grabbed an umbrella which was the closest thing to a weapon that was near him and went to her room. No. He shined his flashlight in her face, blinding her, before he started stabbing her with the umbrella.
0: No. No.
1: Carmen threw the blankets at him, and ran out of her room screaming. It was dark, but Carmen could see that he tried to swipe her one more time with the umbrella before he ran out the door. The apartment neighbors heard the screaming and called police. Carmel had abrasions and severe bruising on her chest and upper right arm, but she survived the attack.
0: Okay. Real quick. Like if somebody broke into my house, I have so much pent up aggression right now. I know. Now I'm like because of like I'm ready. COVID. I'm going. I have stand, a knife I'm by go my bed, for blood. and I'm thinking right? about fucking, buying a gun. Okay? I'd be like, motherfucker, you picked the wrong fucking Don't house. Even fucking come here because I need to express this anger I've been withholding, and it's yeah. not
1: socially acceptable for me to do it on anybody else,
0: right? So but you broke you, into my house.
1: You can you can fucking take it. Yeah. Well, on August 10, 1963, the Dowds needed a babysitter for their eighth month-old son. Their usual babysitter was sick, but she recommended to her friend, 18year-old Shirley McLeod, which I believe is the brother who I spoke of at the beginning earlier earlier.: Yeah, because there were two McLeod's, but they were spelled slightly differently. Uh, This was a similar babysitting situation as the one uh, Janet Christman showed up to from episode 41, where the baby was asleep when Shirley woke, showed up, so Shirley was able to set up in the living room and study. Shirley was a top student and a prefect. Harry Potter vibes. Yeah. Uh, A what? A prefect. Prefect. I don't know. They're just like students in charge of the students. Oh, Okay. It's late, folks. It's fine. Uh, So she was all those things at Kent Street High School. She was a good basketball and hockey player and had won a scholarship to attend the University of Western Australia. She had a good social life and was casually dating a fellow student. Right now, she was mostly focused on her studies. Uh, Shirley had also made the acquaintance of John Sturkey before he had been murdered. She also had a connection to another victim, Brian Weir, as Shirley's father had known Brian's mother. Quick
0: timeout, hockey is not hockey in
1: Australia. Field hockey? Okay, because I was like, it doesn't seem like an icy place.
0: Yeah, it's not ice hockey, just to be clear, because I'm a big fan of ice hockey. I
1: do like ice hockey a lot.
0: I like when they beat each other They're up. They're very fighty.
1: I love it. Yes,
0: it's the best.
1: We go, gloves off. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay, well, onto to a less fun Sorry, topic. guys. Gloves on. Because Cook was also busy. That is In his lady gloves. In his lady gloves. He first broke into a home where he had seen a woman sitting on the couch, but Cook wanted the thrill. So inside one of the bedrooms, Cook found another twenty-two rifle that he grabbed and ran out of the house with. No. He jumped into a car he had stolen, drove to a different neighborhood, and started creeping about on foot. How many goddamn cars has he stolen? It's, like, uncountable, because he probably stole so many more when he was just doing his burglaries. Like, one a night? I know, like you. So, he at least went out Fridays and Saturdays, it seemed like, very consistently. Yeah. It was a stormy night with lightning and thunder, and this was in Cook's favor, as the noise of the storm would drown out any sound of a gunshot. Cook entered the Dowd's home through an unlocked garage door. As he crept through the darkened hallway, he saw Shirley in the living room bent over her books. She was facing him, but she was looking down at her books, so she didn't actually see him. Cook took aim with the rifle, shot Mm. her, collected the cartridges, learning from that Australia Day mistake, and drove Uh away. Since he had retrieved the cartridge, Cook thought that he could keep the rifle this time, and he hid it before he drove home. So he didn't dispose of it. And when he got home, it was 1 a.m., but his wife was still awake. I can't believe they're still fucking married. Mm-hmm. He told her, I'm home, but just late. He's acting normal, like nothing had happened, but she could see that his clothes were wet. though well, it was raining. The Dowds arrived home at 2 a.m. after a great night out, and were completely blindsided by the scene that they walked into. Mrs. Dowd yeah. had gone straight to her son's room to check on him, and it was Mr. Dowd who walked in on the bloody scene. Shirley was dead. Mr. Dowd raced to his son's room, slammed the door, and pressed his back against it, because he wasn't sure if the killer was still in the house. It took a while before he crept out to the telephone in the hallway and called the police.
0: Hey, smart move. Mm-hmm. Like, protect your protect family. Your he could have been around. Six months old. Right? And quick timeout, so in the six years that this guy has been doing this shit, if he was working on Saturday and Sunday, it would oh, be no. a total of 624 cars that he stole.
1: Also, he worked a, he walked a little bit. So, the police weren't sure if this crime could be linked with the Australia Day killings, but the police made it their first priority to try to find that spent cartridge. Okay. They also found a clue. One fingerprint in the house that did not match anyone who was known to have been in the house. The police decided to start a huge campaign where they would take the fingerprints of all men between the ages of 14 and 60 across all of Perth. Oh, oh wow. God. Police started in the Nedlands suburb and just went from house to house taking fingerprints, leaving a message for any man who was not at home to come down to the station. That's insane. I know. They really go That's big. crazy crazy, pants. Oh they already tested 60,000. I know. Guns? What year was this? 1963
2: what was the population
1: oh uh, it was it's still a lot though uh six days later the elderly keener couple went out for their usual afternoon walk 450,000. so like roughly half of that would be would be between 14 and 60 that's a lot of fingerprints don't worry they didn't have to do it all because the keeners went for a walk They usually tried to go every day, but had to take some time off as Mr. Keener had been sick with bronchitis. But He was finally filling up to taking walks again, and they set off, admiring the landscaping and the blooming wax flowers. Taking a closer look at one of the flowers, Mrs. Keener leaned closer to a bush on a sandy bank, and her weight caused the sand to start to shift and a rifle to slide out from out of the bush and into her knee. (gasps) she found it she found it and they called the police good job and the police came and they picked up the rifle there was one bullet left in the rifle which ballistics experts shot and then compared to the bullet removed from shirley's body the marks on both bullets match okay they should also just like camp out and wait for whoever comes to that bush girl you could work for the perth
0: police (laughs) <laughs> i was also thinking of fingerprints on the casing yeah the last oh, remaining yeah. bullet because he may not have been wearing his lady gloves exactly when he loaded the gun
1: so the police ran the gun and found that it belonged to a garrick agnew who was a former olympic swimmer who had reported oh. it missing three days earlier and he had been overseas before then so he was cleared from suspicion okay so the police had a murder weapon, but they still needed the murderer. And in order mm-hmm. to try to catch him, they decided to set the most Looney Tunes cardboard blocks on a stick type of trap. It's like the Roadrunner. Yes! So they assumed that the rifle had been hidden by the perpetrator with the intention of coming back to it to get it at some point. So they put the rifle back in the bush and tied a fucking fishing line to it. A fishing line? Yes! They also watched this bush continuously, so they had a patrolman watching it, and nothing happened for about two weeks. Mm. On August 31st, 1963, the police ran a story in the West Australian saying that they would be turning their attention to the Mount Pleasant-Applecross area at the end of the week. This was the area where the rifle had been left, and the police hoped that the story would cause the killer to panic and come pick up the gun before the police turned their sights on that area of Perth. It fucking worked. That very evening, the two officers on patrol took down Eric Edgar Cook as he was trying to retrieve the rifle. About fucking time. Cook was wearing women's gloves and a pair of women's panties was found in one of his pockets. Oh, for
0: fuck's sake!
1: They also found a cutout from the July 12th newspaper social column about a wedding taking place on August 31st, which was that very night. That was circled and an address was written next to it, so he was prowling with a purpose. Okay. He had intent. Uh At police headquarters, Cook readily admitted to his breaking and entering activities as he hadn't been able to get rid of the loot that he had picked up that night he denied any connection to Shirley Mac- MacLeod's death. He told them that he had seen the gun the previous week when he had stopped to adjust the load in his van. And that he had come back tonight to pick up the gun so he could sell it. Oh, yeah, yeah. The police told him that he must have been an idiot. Because the gun was found under a bush on an extremely steep street. Which is a dumbass place to adjust the load in your van. Yeah. Yeah. Cook quickly changed his story. But bullshit, Cook. He's so full of shit. He changed his story, but he wouldn't admit to anything besides the burglary that night. Cook was well known to the police by this point, so they switched tactics and sent one of Cook's favorite detectives to talk to him. So Detective Gordon Mormon had actually liked Cook, and Cook could sense that. And not
0: Methodist.
1: Not Methodist. Actually, Sorry. it's not clear. Uh, but Detective <laughs> Moorman had first met Cook when cook was a teenager and learned about all his upbringing and he was a very sad sack of a case at that time dealt a pretty bad hand and detective mormon was naturally kind and polite to everyone including criminals and they had even run into each other a couple times outside of the police station when they would randomly attend the same football match which is soccer and chat together (laughs) okay the police also went to cook's household at 8 15 in the morning to speak to sally his wife Mm -hmm. they did ask her whether she was pregnant before breaking the news i guess they didn't want to shock (laughs) the potential baby eighth baby she wasn't pregnant and so she was told that her husband was in custody for breaking the entering and also suspected of murder she was like fucking finally Uh they told her seven kids later oh fuck i know They told her that Cook had said that she would confirm his alibi for the night of Shirley McLeod's murder, but Sally finally snapped. She's
2: like, fuck no. She told the truth. Even if he was home, I'd say he wasn't.
1: Fuck, get him him. out of my fucking hair. (laughs) So she told the truth. He had come home late that night, and she wrote out a statement, which the police brought back and showed to Cook. Cook told Detective Mormon that he wouldn't say another word until he had seen his wife. And Sally was brought down to the station. Which was a bit of a weird turn, but she confirmed that she had written the statement. Okay. Cook said, why did you do it? To which Sally replied, because it is the truth, Eric, and you know it. Cook asked, what do you think I should do now? Sally said, that's up to you, Eric. Oh, I would really? have
0: said, go fuck yourself, Eric. Uh, yeah, Eric. Drop the bar of soap, Eric yeah
1: this plus the forensic evidence presented to him calls cook to the crack reach over and take a pen out of detective mormon's shirt pocket and write out his confession
2: oh uh, i was like stabbed himself in the no, eye it, he no he just
1: liked to invade personal space a little bit Oof. he was touchy He's a little touchy yeah he admitted to shooting shirley McCloud, mcleod but didn't re- but said he didn't remember anything about it because he had blacked out he was charged with the willful murder of Shirley McLeod that evening. The police were also certain that Cook had committed the Australia Day murders, but since he had used a different gun, they couldn't physically link him to those murders. So over the next few days, the police drove Cook around the city of Perth, and he helpfully pointed out each and every house that he had ever broken into, and he also maintained an accurate tally of what he had took from each house. And so he basically had a photographic memory when it came to his crimes. He's like,
2: that one, that one, not that one. And he was like, like, I took
1: 17 pounds from that house, I took 11 shillings. Like he and they went back and they asked the people in the house and they were like, oh, yeah, I did lose 11 shillings. Whatever. okay Jesus. Uh, But he wouldn't admit to any other murders until the second day of this crime tour. Over lunch, one of the detectives told Cook straight up, quote, Cookie, you're going to hang. There's no two ways about that. You'll go to the gallows as a bloody coward for the way you shot these people.
2: Mm hmm. Wait, they still did gallows back then? Oh, yeah.
1: <laughs> your wife and your kids are going to be reading history about you as a cowardly mongrel who went to the gallows without letting the people know exactly what you've done. Ooh, I like it. So what are you going to do, Cookie? Go like that or go like a bloody gentleman and clear the air and let us know all about it? Ooh, good point. Uh-huh. Was that Mormon? No, that was a different rando. Okay. That was Methodist. ha! <laughs> That was Catholic. Detective Catholic. Uh, <laughs> Repent your sins before you go yeah, to hell. I guess
2: I would be more Catholic.
1: <laughs> Cook stopped eating his curry, reached over to grab another pen out of the officer's pocket. Can you imagine,
0: though, you're like sitting there and he lunges towards I you? I would just be like, Ugh. I would have stabbed him in the eye.
1: <laughs> well, if you did that, he would not have been able to write out his confessions for the Australia Day murders and assaults. Well, he already had one pen. <laughs>
0: Hand it to him. I know. Stop just grabbing it out
1: of people's shirts. Be like, hey, hey,
0: hey. Stop touching me.
1: Bubble. There's a bubble here. Bubble.
0: I finished all my alcohol and I'm very drunk right now. I'm
2: too full to finish the rest of my alcohol.
1: I'm going to finish this beer, but I don't think I should open another one. So here we go. When asked why he did all these things, all he kept saying was, quote, I just wanted to hurt somebody. Rude. Rude, dude. On September 3rd, he was charged with the willful murder of John Lindsay Sturkey and George Orman Walmsley. Just the dudes? Well, this is the uh, Australia Day murders. Oh, okay. okay. The uh, attempted murder of Nicholas August and the unlawful wounding of Rowena Reeves. Okay. Cook was also able to take the police to where he had tossed the Australia Day rifle in the river and divers were able to retrieve it. Wow. Okay. Over the next two weeks, Cook's tour of crime continued. He even remembered petty thefts that had not been reported, in which the homeowners noticed that a small amount of money was missing, but it had assumed that someone else in the house had taken it. They were shocked when police showed up on their doorsteps and let them know that they had been victims of burglary by the man who had kept Perth in fear for the last six years. Holy Lock fuck! Your fucking doors! And don't put your keys in your car. <laughs> they actually eventually passed a law saying it was illegal to leave the key in your ignition. I love it. I know. It's probably called the Cook Law. <laughs> or Orla, well, like, you're a dumbass law. Stop doing this. Yeah. Cook admitted to entering about 250 houses, but in the end, he was officially charged with committing 20 counts of breaking and entering. It would have taken- Uh, 20? Well, it would have taken four fucking ever for each individual burglary to be investigated, and they had bigger fish to fry. True. Cook also confessed to attacking five different women while they were asleep over the last four years, and five different hit-and-runs. On October 25th, Cook was charged with two of the four other murders he'd confessed to. The willful murders of Lucy Madrill and Penina Berkman. Okay. The only defense that his attorneys would present was that he was not guilty by reason of insanity.
2: I was going to say, it's going to be an insanity plea. because He already
1: confessed.
0: Yeah.
1: Plus, he's very smart. Like, yeah. Well, don't worry. However... The Crown refused the defense's request for private psychiatrists to examine Cook. The only psychiatrist who would be allowed to testify would be Dr. Ellis, Western Australia's most senior mental health worker. Okay. Dr. Ellis found Cook fit to stand trial and did not believe that he lacked the ability to control his actions, noting that, quote, all actions surrounding the event were ultimately di- directed at concealment, end quote. And that there was no evidence of delusions at any time. And Dr. Ellis wasn't done yet. Long quote coming up, guys. Okay, let's hear it. The crux of the problem appears from the test to lie in his conception of the world around him and his place in it. This conception is dominated by his dependency, uh, which are so strong as to be insatiable, and he has built up a fund of frustration. People are divided into those who can or should meet his needs and the others with whom he has no social contact. His relationships with people are essentially exploitative. He both needs people and fears them, the latter because they might decide not to accept him as he wishes to be accepted. He is quite aware of the distinction between right and wrong, but this is not as important in deciding his actions as the immediate satisfaction of his needs for gratification. Yeah. And then he ended with this banger. For all of his having seven children, he is sexually naive (laughs) and afraid of women who might conceivably test his sexual adequacy. The only safe woman for him is the mother. Fuck,
0: I almost, I just drank water while you were saying that (laughs) It almost came out my nose. <laughs> He's a two-pump chump who yeah, can't yeah, help yeah. anyone yeah, else. Yeah, recently. yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh,
1: fuck. Otter
0: agrees. Thank you, Otter.
1: His trial began on November 25th, 1963, for the willful murder of John Lindsay Sturvey. Kirk had confessed to the murder, so the only thing that was on trial here was whether or not Cook was insane. Oh. <laughs> Cook, did I say Kirk. Sorry, Kirk. <laughs> Should I redo this whole paragraph? Yeah, probably. No. No. <laughs> Never mind. It'll sound fine. Fine. I promise. Okay. Cook went on the stand on the second day, where he told everybody about the feeling of power that overcame him when he went on his rampages. A very strong power, as though he were God and had power over life and death. Fuck you. Fuck you. The <laughs> L. That. <laughs> The feeling did not leave him until he had shot or maimed someone, and after that, he was aware of what he had done, but it was too late to do anything about it. It took the jury only one hour and five minutes to find Cook guilty of willful murder. 45 minutes if that was lunch? Uh, Probably, actually. Uh, Mr. (laughs) Mr. Justice Virtue was back again, and he told the- Virtue! I know. He told the court that, quote, I have no doubt that was the right verdict. (laughs) <laughs> and then there's just weird Australian court stuff. He then ceremoniously put a black cloth on his head and pronounced the death sentence. Yes. What is the he black He's probably for? also wearing a wig. Yeah, one maybe like those old powdered right? yeah. wig, it's like still—it's still the—it's still the, the, it's crown, still the right? crown. So yeah, Cook thanked the judge and smiled as he left the courtroom. Back to his prison cell. Yes. Since he was sentenced to death for John Sturkey's murder, he did not go to trial for any of the other charges. The Daily News wrote an editorial calling for the fullest inquiry into Cook's other crime so the details would be made public. However, it was not the state's practice to pursue further trials once a person had been convicted of willful murder, which I kind of understand from the state's perspective. But sure. it also left the public and many of the victims and their families unsatisfied.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: This was especially awkward because the police did not do a great job in conveying what they had learned from Cook's confession. So at mm-hmm. this point, the public didn't even know that Cook was responsible for the hidden runs. Oh, oh. fuck! uh uh-huh. The police did contact most of the victims, uh, but when they decided that Cook was too fuzzy on the details for some of them, they changed that to a false confession. This happened to Alex Donkun, the nursing student who had been attacked. Yeah. Uh, The police also never spoke to Molly McLeod and her family, leaving them to continue to believe that she had just fallen out of her bed for some reason.
0: No, you did not fall out of your bed.
1: She does get to learn. Okay. Some of the victims also wanted to have their day in court in order to clear their reputations from the mud that had been slung on them during the investigation. Oh, fucking yeah. Jill Connell, the teenager who worked at the ice cream shop and was hit by Cook's car especially wanted this opportunity as she was the victim who the police believe had actually stolen the car with her boyfriend right so the police initially did contact Jill and she was elated to finally know what happened that night and be able to completely clear her name with her mother. I just want to pet
0: on her right now. <laughs> He's so
1: sweet. <laughs> However, He's being very snuggly. <laughs> no one else believed Jill. And after she had not heard back from the police, she called them and asked when the trial would be. And she was told that there would be no trial. Fuck. Oh, no. To break up the monotony of jail on September 25th, 1964, Cook's parents visited him in prison. It's the first time in 13 months that Cook had seen his father. The visit started off okay, but quickly devolved when Vivian told his son, quote, I've been told that you would have shot me if you could have found me, but it would have taken a better man than you, unless you had got me in the dark like you did the others. You never never gave them a chance. This is why I feel so bad about it. She's a bit self-righteous, coming from an abusive drunk who had literally nearly killed his wife a few years ago. Yeah. Uh, and Cook felt the same, telling his father to, quote, go and get fucked. Piss off. Piss off. The prison guard quickly ushered his parents out of the visiting cell while Cook shouted, open this door and let him in. I will murder him. Then he told his mom, thanks for coming. And told his father, goodbye. I will see you in hell. So, Well, <laughs> that's fair. That's fair. After his parents had left, the prison guard told Cook that he should be ashamed of his language, to which, uh, <laughs> Cook flew into a rage where he started bashing his head against a wall until he was sedated, which, and honestly, fair, fair, yeah. On October 14th, 1964, the state government announced Cook's execution date as October 26th at 8 a.m. Hang him high. He turned to the Bible, as the convicted often do when facing their death, and conversed with the prison chaplains, Reverend George Jenkins, the Methodist from the first Methodist. episode, and there's also a Reverend Ralph Thomas. His mother and his wife visited him one last time on October 25th, but his father declined, making a statement to the Daily News instead, saying, quote, It will be a good thing when the whole episode is over. Perhaps then we will be able to settle down to something like a normal life. End quote. So not a man prone to self-reflection. Okay. His last meal <gasps> was a roast and plum pudding. Oh. And I've never had okay. plum pudding, but uh, Google Images doesn't make it look super great.
0: I do love plums, though, so I'm interested to see, like, like a
1: Cahootie or, like, a Cobbler, but, like, a plum pudding looks... I don't know. I would need to see a recipe. <laughs> yeah. Well, you had a roast and a plum pudding. Okay. I just coughed. He was just like, ah, <laughs> I don't love that. I fucking hate plum pudding. Thanks, Otter. <laughs> At like 118. <laughs> it was like a little... <laughs> <laughs> he did decline the offer of whiskey, which I would not have done. No. He did remain very calm and accepting of his fate, because he said that death was better than life in prison, which is a little unsatisfying, but it does provide definite closure for the case, so it's kind of a wash there. He also claimed that he believed that he deserved to pay for his crimes. Yeah, you do, you fuck. At 7.59 a.m., he was taken from his cell and walked 47 steps past the flogging triangle, which the prison just had for some reason. Oh, they couldn't stop off there for a little bit? No. Into the gallows chamber. Uh, There seemed to be a dedicated hangman that served all the prisons in Australia, and so he was flown to Perth under the fake name Mr. Wilkinson. He was a consummate professional and determined that the prisoner who weighed 126 pounds with clothing required a 6 foot 8 inch rope in order to ensure a quick death. With a clean, broken neck. The hangman placed him on the trapdoor, put the noose around his neck, covered his face with a hood, and pulled the lever. Boom! Pull the lever, Crunk. <laughs> 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 yes. And it took less than a minute for Cook to die.
2: Good. Oh, so it wasn't immediate. They just strangle a little bit. But usually
1: you know. that's gonna take quite a while. A minute seems fine. And they might have been counting the time for the doctor to like walk down the stairs to like actually touch him, but all right. Not finished. Sally, his wife, had requested permission to collect his body for a family burial. Why, Sally? Uh, spit on him. Well, their oldest son, the one that was mentally disabled, had died six months earlier. Oh, so she was probably mm. mourning. And Sally had kept his remains on hold, hoping to bury her son and her husband together, which I don't no. really know why.
2: No, that guy needs to like, just right. Be- gone. To the
1: His request was denied, which I think is for the best for the son.
2: Good. Yeah. His body mm-hmm.
1: was buried in grave number 409 of the prison cemetery, and he was actually buried on top of Martha Rendell, who had been hanged 55 years earlier for the crime of killing her three stepchildren. Well, there you go. Martha was the only woman who was ever hanged at Fremantle Prison, and Eric Edgar Cook would be the last person to be hanged there. Interesting. Cook spent the last 15 minutes of his life with the prison chaplains and he made his final confession. He took the Bible out of one of their hands, touchy to the last, and made his dying confession, saying, quote, I swear before Almighty God that I killed Anderson and Brewer. End quote. So, this story's not quite done. Sorry, y'all. Oh my gosh. We're getting there, okay? Uh, but there are two people who are in prison for crimes that Cook had committed. So, Jillian Brewer was that socialite who had been murdered on December 19th, 1959. Uh, that case remained unsolved until more than a year later when a man named Daryl Beamish was arrested and charged with crimes of a minor sexual nature against young girls. So, he basically groped for girls. Pedophile. Yeah. Mm. And he was sentenced to six months in jail.
0: Not enough.
1: Uh, mm-mm. Well, don't worry. Castration. Well, let it happen. Yeah. Daryl was Name. 19 and was a deaf mute, the result of meningitis when he was a baby. He communicated through sign language and had been in minor trouble before for theft and defacing pro- property. While he was waiting for his sentencing for his conviction on the charges involving the young girls, detectives came to the prison and questioned him about the Jillian Brewer murder using a sign language interpreter. Without hmm. his parents or a lawyer present, that day he confessed to killing Jillian Brewer and signed a written confession the next day. On June 16, 1961, Daryl Beamish was charged with the willful murder of Jillian Brewer, and the trial commenced shortly after. Hmm. Daryl pled not guilty, saying that the confessions were false and had been obtained under duress, and was guided towards saying certain things by the detective and the sign language interpreter. The jury found Daryl guilty, but strongly recommended mercy. Justice Sir Albert Wolfe didn't go that route and sentenced Daryl to death. He was taken to death row, where he is kept alone in one of the condemned cells. The morning after the sentencing, Darrell woke up and wrote, quote, I worried my mom and dad, and also, quote, What for here? He did not understand that he had been sentenced to death, and also asked a guard, quote, How many weeks I stay here? And, quote, I will have Mary with Kay five months. Nice girl. She is 22. Uh, so Daryl Beamish's conviction in sentencing was very controversial, despite the brutality of the crime he was accused of. So on December 13, 1961, his death sentence was commuted to life imprisonment. with hard labor, and he was transferred out of his solitary cell on death row to the main population. In the Hmm. case of Rosemary Anderson, the police focused their attention on her boyfriend, John Button. Oh no. So John and Rosemary had only been dating for six months, but it looked like it was headed towards marriage, and John felt like he was living in a dream. February 9th, 1963 was his 19th birthday. Oh, what a sweet boy. But it would become a nightmare before the date was over. He wanted nothing more than to spend his birthday with his girlfriend, and he got his wish. They didn't do anything particularly special that day, but John was happy. That evening, they went to John's house and had tea with his parents before his parents- Dinner. Yeah, tea slash dinner (laughs) with his parents before his parents left for the evening and left the lovebirds with John's younger brother, Jimmy, who was 16. The three teenagers started playing stripjack, which is a card game also known as Beggar My Neighbor- or beat Jack outside. See, strip Jack is like blackjack, but also strip I poker. I guess so.
2: In my head, <laughs> okay. and then it just took a re- a weird left turn. And
1: then you beat Jack outside. <laughs> yes,
2: for staring at your girlfriend.
1: Okay, it's similar to war, and it's actually the precursor of one of my favorite card games, Egyptian rat screw, which I don't know if I'm. What is that? It's a slappy game. It's fun. You slap. Stuff? You slap pairs and stuff. People. Yeah. It's super fun. Oh, you like this? No, no, or no. Like... You slap a card deck
0: down. Okay. <laughs> but if there's a hand already there and you can't stop and you're slapping okay. people. It's not
1: this. Is. Not, not in okay. the face. But I love a gesture rat screw.
0: I can't wait to play cards with you guys. I always have cards in my purse.
1: Sean <laughs> called the game to an early stop when he found himself only wearing his trousers.
0: Oh, fuck. So it is strip poker.
1: It is. It's strip <laughs> jack, though. So it's like, it's strip
0: Strip blackjack. Blackjack, I guess. You did not get 21, sir. No. Please remove your trousers.
1: I don't know what it is. Yeah. Anyway. Jimmy, the younger brother, was a bit salty about, quote, the game being over before the fun had started. Just kind (laughs) of gross. But John and Rosemary distracted him by going to pick up some fish and chips.
0: Gotta love fish and chips.
1: (laughs) It does make me really hungry. (laughs) (laughs) I haven't had fish and chips in in a fucking while. Okay. So about here... John's story gets a little weird for me, so you can tell me what you think. Okay. That very same night, a 23-year-old man had confronted his father about a rumor that he was the product of incest. It seemed as if the rumor was true, and the man snapped, shot, and killed a policeman and took a taxi driver hostage- Snapped? Snapped. 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 He snapped. Snapped. Shot and killed a policeman and took a taxi driver hostage- and was on the- Oh, that's a It's the same guy. So that's- Oh, fuck! So when John and Rosemary came back to the house with the fish and chips, Jimmy was watching the news coverage of the manhunt, and the three of them settled in on the floor with their fish and were transfixed by what they were saying on the TV. Okay, this is the weird part. Out of the corner of his eye, John saw a hand reach out to take his piece of fish. He assumed it was his younger brother and was annoyed, barking out, get your own but it wasn't jimmy it was rosemary and being spoken to in that tone had caused her to start crying stand up and announce that she was going home (gasps) john was frantically trying to apologize and he offered to drive her home but she declined that's a fight they had it seems like a dumbass fight though no, but Just give me your fish, bitch. Also, just like, oh, I thought you were my brother. Sorry, you can have my fish. <laughs> yeah, she's a little too sensitive. Uh Yeah, fish. so she told him she would rather walk than get in a car with him. Aww. Uh John got in his car and followed her, pulling up to her several times and apologizing at her through the window and begging her to get into the car.
2: At least drive home. If she's not going to be in the car, make sure that she gets home okay.
1: Yeah. Yeah, so Rosemary refused and she won't even speak to him. Uh, so, John pulled to the side of the road, parked, and watched Rosemary turn the corner I received from his view. He had decided to let her walk for a little bit to give her time to cool down. Yeah, because he's like, fuck off. Yeah. It was just a piece of fish. Oh, the fish thing. I'm just like, the fish thing? Really? Anyway. It must be really good fish. I was really hungry when I wrote this. (laughs) He knew that her path would get dark and isolated and assumed that she would relent and get into the car once she had reached that part of the walk home. So, John smoked a cigarette and then went to find her. Mm -hmm. John had his eyes off of her for about five minutes, and at some point in that short time span, Rosemary had been run down by Cook in a stolen car. Yeah. And then John had found Rosemary slumped on the side of the road but cook was gone yeah and then like i said in the previous episode john took rosemary to a doctor's house the ambulance was called to take her to the hospital and john waited for the police to show up so that he could give his statement Mm -hmm. constable ron wilson took a good look at john and concluded that he looked like shit (laughs) basically uh his story his story was not believable and he was acting extremely nervous Wilson went out and examined John's car, which was parked in the doctor's driveway, and found that the front left-hand side was damaged. John told him that he had gotten into a minor car accident a few weeks ago and just hadn't taken the car in to be fixed. Wilson was not buying it and asked John to come with him to police headquarters. Mm -hmm. Technically, he wasn't under arrest and didn't have to go with Wilson, but he was also 19 and in shock, and no one called his parents. At the police station, John continued to tell his story, but it was obvious to him that they did not believe him. At about 2.30 in the morning, John was asked if he wanted to make a statement, and he agreed, thinking that he had nothing to hide. Detective Deering typed it up, but did not believe it at all. John kept asking for information about Rosemary's condition, and about 3 a.m., he was told that Rosemary was dead. And she actually was. Mm. This wasn't a police tactic.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, He was completely shocked, threw up, he was quickly falling into a deep despair, and he did feel like this whole thing was his fault. So when the detectives asked if he wanted to give another statement, he performed and gave them what he wanted. John Budden was charged with willful murder and went to trial on April 29th, 1963. His defense team was skeptical at first, but were now firmly convinced that John was innocent. His confession had been coerced, and although his car did have some damage, it didn't seem to be what you would expect on a car that had actually hit, killed someone. True. John's lawyer thought that if he would plead guilty to manslaughter, then he would probably only get 10 years in jail, but John refused. He would not plead guilty to something that he hadn't done and was prepared to face the death sentence. The prosecution also didn't seem too psyched about going for the death penalty in this case, with one of them personally believing that the charge should have been a lesser one, like dangerous driving causing death. Huh. The detectives wanted the second confession to be thrown out. As John said on the stand, quote, They took advantage of me in getting me to make a statement. The continuing of the questioning, and after I was told that Rosemary was dead, I was rather upset, and they more or less took advantage of my state of mind. Mm -hmm. However, the detectives that took this confession were unwavering in their description of that night and were unshaken by a very tough cross-examination. So in the end, the judge ruled that the confession could stay in and that he saw no Mm -hmm. impropriety in the manner of its collection. The defense made their closing remarks first telling the jury that there was no physical evidence to connect John's car with hitting Rosemary, and then that the confession had been given under extreme emotional distress, ending with quote, when you were a child at school, in copy books you wrote, water wears away stone, and so will two bullies wear away a youth of 19. Hmm. The prosecution disagreed and said that the evidence did show that John's car had struck Rosemary and that it was up to the jury to decide his intention. what a tremendous coincidence that she should be struck when the accused was sitting in his car just 300 to 400 yards away. What a coincidence they should have had an argument. If the accused car wasn't the car, the coincidences required would have been colossal. That's a lot of C word. I know. <laughs> I'm proud I got through it. When the jury came back from deliberations, the court clerk asked for their verdict and the foreman responded with, not guilty. Oh. Ugh. There okay. was a silence of about eight seconds before the clerk started to ask if the verdict was unanimous when the foreman cut him off. I'm sorry, sir. I said the wrong thing there. I must <gasps> apologize, Your Honor. No. When asked again whether John Button was- was guilty or not guilty? The foreman re- replied, "Guilty of the charge of manslaughter." <gasps> oh. so that was a fucking roller coaster. He was sentenced to imprisonment with hard labor for ten years. Ten?
0: I mean, I it's know he manslaughter. didn't do it, but like,
1: yeah, it's manslaughter, manslaughter. versus uh, Beamish got life because of how vicious the murder was. Sure. And basically, his second confession was that he was just trying to scare Rosemary, and he accidentally hit her. Okay. Uh, So Daryl Beamish and John Budden were both in prison serving their sentences when Cook was arrested. The first time that Cook had told authorities that he had killed Julian Brewer and Rosemary Anderson was during those first three weeks when he was taking the authorities on a tour of Perth, pointing out where he had committed all of his crimes. Here. 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 There's a lot of Here, Here. He actually, like... Uh, When his lawyer came, the first thing he asked is whether Cook had been in his house and gave him the address, and Cook said no. (laughs) The police weren't super excited to hear this, as they had already closed those cases.
2: Because they were wrong. Yeah, and the perpetrators were in jail. Yeah. And at
1: this point, Cook hadn't told them about any of his other hit and runs, so Rosemary's murder especially seemed to not match up with what they knew of his M.O., Mm-hmm. Cook wrote a, a confession describing the murders of Jillian Brewer and Rosemary Anderson. The police went to check it out and found several small discrepancies in Cook's statement. They brought that up with Cook and asked him if he was really, really sure that he had committed those two murders. It was confused Cook a bit. He told them, quote, I don't understand it. I'm sure I killed her. I can prove it. But, eventually, <laughs> Cook wrote a retraction for those two murders, saying, quote, I know now, by visiting the scene in respect to the crime in relation to Rosemary Anderson, and having had the facts and positions pointed out to me, I find they are opposite to what I said earlier. When I admitted to this crime, I firmly believed I were the person responsible. Oh, that was some other
0: fucking person I hit. Yeah. So. Thanks, Eric. Eric.
1: Well, after Cook had been convicted for killing John Starkey, he again began telling people that he was also responsible for the murders of Jillian Brewer and Rosemary Anderson. Again, he wrote his confession, this time in front of one of the defense lawyers serving as a witness. And this defense lawyer had also been on John Button's defense team and was ecstatic to finally have some evidence to exonerate John. Mm-hmm. Both John Budden and Gerald Beamish petitioned the courts for a new trial based on this new information. Cook even appeared as a witness during the preliminary hearing, although this didn't really help. One of the justices wrote, quote, It has been amply demonstrated that Cook himself is a witness of no credit at all. It is not merely that he suffers the discredit of being a convicted murderer who is confessed to and has been accepted by the crown as guilty of four separate homicides, accounting in each case to willful murder, in mm-hmm. addition to the murder for which he has been convicted. It is that he is also shown during his cross-examination to be a palpable and indeed a self-confessed liar. Mm-hmm. Both appeals were declined. So, at Cook's last gallows confession, Reverend Jenkins was 100% sure that Cook had killed both Jillian Brewer and Rosemary Anderson, telling Cook's wife, quote, He was virtually on the gallows. It wasn't going to delay his hanging at that point. He had nothing to gain, hmm. only the opposite. He was terrified that Button and Beamish might try to take it out on you and the children. So, Cook confessed to 20 murders and attempted murders. The only ones the police didn't believe were the Anderson and Brewer murders and the attempted murder of Alex Donkun. And if Cook had wanted to claim as many murders as he could, there were two unsolved murders in Perth at that time. One of them was even a hit and run that he could have confessed to, but he did not. Okay. Hmm.
0: Well, maybe that's the one he mistaken for the other person.
1: Well, no. (laughs) (laughs) John Budden was released on parole on December 20th, 1967, after spending almost five years in prison. On his way out, he was dunked in a basin of cold water, which is the traditional prisoner's farewell ritual, question mark.
0: They give him (laughs) a a swirly?
1: Basically. And then said goodbye. Uh, with the help of the parole board, he got a welding job, and on November 9, 1968, he married Helen Featherstone, whom he had met at his ballroom dancing sessions. He also did get psychiatric treatment, but John still suffered from a series of deep depressions and mental breakdowns for nine years after his release. And he still has regular nightmares where he believes he's in prison again and will never be released. Daryl Beamish was released after 15 years in prison. I got the majority of the information for this case from the book Broken Lives, written by Estelle Blackburn. So Estelle had been a political journalist, and in 1992, she was the press secretary for the Premier of Western Australia. Oh. She also went to a dance class every week and danced with the same partner every time. And then on one night that she was about to go dancing, she got a call from a friend of hers telling her that he had been arrested but that he was innocent. So Estelle called her dancing partner and told him that she was not going to be able to make it that night because a friend of hers had been framed by the cops. And then quote, And Jim said, Don't talk to me about the police framing people. They framed my brother for a murder cook did. It's Jimmy Button." Oh, Oh my God. So Estelle ended up quitting her job and spent the next six years collecting evidence for the book. She got access to all the police files and interviewed anyone that she could find. This book is heavily focused on the injustice done to John Budden, as by 1992, Daryl Beamish had given up after losing five appeals in the 1960s, and he was also out of prison by that time. And when Estelle started researching, his family mostly declined to participate, not wanting to further stress his mother. Sure. When Broken Lies was published in October 1998, there was an immediate public political and legal reaction. Mm-hmm. On August 14, 1999, the Western Australian government granted John Budden a new trial. Daryl Beamish's sister then approached Estelle asking for help to have Daryl's conviction re-examined. And in June 2000, Daryl was also granted a new appeal. They were both represented pro bono at these trials. And in both cases, the judges reversed the original decision, and John Budden and Daryl Beamish were officially cleared after 40 years of being convicted. Holy wow. fuck. One of the justices wrote in his decision, quote, The success of this appeal, so many years after the conviction, is a poignant and fundamental reminder that justice has no use by date. One can only admire the fortitude with which they have borne the burden of this unjust conviction for the past 38 years.
0: hmm uh.
1: The end. Okay,
0: <laughs> let's hit this shit <laughs> quick.
1: Sorry. Sorry, not sorry. But, like, this is going to be a lot.
0: This was phenomenal. This is so good. But I got to get up at four. I know I've got to pee oh, yeah. again. I know. So we're gonna let's close it we're out. to hit as- astrology real quick. So this episode is going to air on March 14th, and I've got a few things. Sarah, do you have any astrology for this week? I Got nothing. Okay. So let me hit this shit real quick. So on Thursday, March seventeenth, Mercury in Pisces is gonna be sextile with Uranus and Taurus. Again, sextile is at sixty degree aspect. And this is going to be a day that we have a little bit of psychic awareness, right? That little like inner juju that the Pisces little gives inner us. Voice. Thank you, Sarah. Our intuition. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that. Oh, yeah. Exactly. So on this day, you are going to just have kind of like extra spidey senses, if you will. It may take you to some interesting discoveries and you might want to consider taking the road that's less traveled. So that's going to be kind of a fun, adventurous day. Just if it's the blessed
2: traveled, I don't know. Keep an eye on those headlights. True. Oh, yes. Those fucking
0: headlights. Mm-hmm. And then on Friday, March 18th, we're going to get a full moon in Virgo.
1: Yay!
0: After dreaming in our dreamy Pisces. Get practical. Right? You're going to be a little bit more practical. You're going to be a little bit more organized. So this is a day to kind of make your dreams become a reality. Coalesce. Yeah. Yeah. And then also on the 18th, Friday the 18th, the sun in Pisces is going to be sextile with Pluto and Capricorn. So Ooh. Sarah, Hannah. Hi. This is a s- strong aspect that increases our power and determination. And as long as we don't abuse the power, we will find ourselves to be very successful in our in- endeavors. And then, just a few more, Saturday, March 19th. I know, this is a week of a bunch of shit. Sometimes
1: nothing happens, and other times a bajillion things happen. I know. Right? right?
0: So, Saturday, March 19th, Venus and Aquarius is going to be square with Uranus and Taurus, so womp womp. This is a very tense aspect that's going to have us kind of like anxious so just be wary saturday march 19th is going to be a day where that anxiety that internal anxiety is kind of kind of rule our day so it might be a good day to stay home i will have just finished grading probably all the reports <laughs> for the quarter stay home have a drink yeah by yourself take and some then- time on Sunday, start of spring break. Yeah. March 20th, um, the sun is going to enter Aries. Hi, Mom. Oh, Pearl. Aww. <laughs> so we're going to kind of end that dreamy Pisces energy, and we're going to start to get into this kind of more intense and passionate. Great balls of fire. Yeah, yeah. Aries energy, which is, it's a good thing. And then also Mercury and Pisces is going to be conjunct. Again, that's you know, when the the two planets are in the same alignment with Jupiter and Pisces. So this is going to be a very gentle aspect, but it's going to allow us to stay quiet, but alert to our surroundings and obtain that information that you gather during that time. So I'll leave that as that. And then for a quick, quick, quick closeout. Just talk to us. We'd love to hear from you. We're not picky.
1: Let us know if you saw any Pisces in a uh, right uh, cook because I did not have time to actually go to astrology as I wrote this monster.
0: No, and such a good monster this was, but. Hit nice. us up on Twitter at True Trine, on Instagram at True Crime Trine, on Facebook at TCT Podcasts. You can email us directly at True Crime Trine. I can't even talk. <laughs> True Crime Trine at gmail.com. And then our website, www.truecrimetrine.com. And the only other thing I have to close out for us is that I've got a few more Australian lingos for us. <laughs> so I've got Ripper, which is great. Oh. Wanker, which is not great. I love wanker. <laughs> Slab, which is basically like a case of beer.
1: Oh, I like that. Oh, which I really like. Yeah.
0: Fair dinkum, which is true or genuine. Fair dinkum. And, and then mates rates. So that's when you get a discount. <laughs> mates rates. Who like buddy discount mates rates? Oh. And then my favorite was Chukawobly. Which is throw a fit. And I'm totally going to use that with my
1: child. You definitely said you're chucking a wobbly right now. You dinkum bogum. Right?
0: Fair dinkum. Fair
1: dinkum. Fair dinkum. Whatever.
2: Oh, man.
0: And then for uh, all of our listeners, we piss up. We want to party with you. (laughs) For all of our non-subscribers, non-listeners, you can piss off. (laughs) So there you go. That's my Australian extra verbiage. Awesome. (laughs) All right. bye. 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 Music for our podcast was handcrafted by the talented and creative minds of Mike Warren and Pete Ortega. Our artwork was imagined and skillfully designed by the lovely Sarah Guest. As for production, well, they call me post-production. Show notes are available upon request. Just email trine at gmail.com. Join us again next week for another tantalizing episode.